Good evening. Welcome to our Bible class for tonight in Colossians chapter 2. We're going to resume our study at verse 11. Colossians chapter 2 at verse 11. I expressed to you on Sunday my concern that in places where in-depth Bible study isn't happening, people are ill-equipped to respond to temptation, deceit, error, and that concern is one reason why here at Laurel Heights we want to expose Bible students to the text of Scripture in a comprehensive and expository manner. So we want to get our hands on the text, the main idea, and see how the main idea emerges from the details. That's what we do. And then we spend about the last 10 minutes making additional practical applications. Colossians 2, 11 through 15, after prayer. Heavenly Father, to Thee we offer our praise and thanksgiving for all that we have in Jesus Christ. May our faith be better informed and enriched this evening, and may we take what we learn from this place out into our lives every day. In Jesus' name, amen. I think the best way to do this is to begin by reading in Colossians 2 at verse 1. And that will take in the paragraph we are concerned with tonight. So Colossians 2, let me start at verse 1 and read through verse 15. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands that he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities 
and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. I'm going to begin our study by strongly suggesting to you that the one main idea from this paragraph is victory. Now that may not be apparent when you first read the paragraph for the first time, but I think it will appear from our study of Colossians 2, 11 through 15. Victory is the theme. Keep that in mind as I begin now back at verse 11. And what I need to do to create a pathway to where we're headed, I need to talk a little about circumcision as it was in the old covenant, then as the Pharisees perverted it, and then as Paul makes reference to a circumcision without hands in Colossians 2 and verse 11. One of the early signs God instituted with Abraham and the men in the Jewish nation was circumcision. It was with Abraham and under the time of Moses' law a sign of the covenant between God and man. It was never a guarantee of access to God and never a means of salvation. It was not automatic purification. It was always a sign of the covenant between God and man. Well, when Jesus died on the cross, there was no longer any religious or spiritual sign necessity or attachment to physical circumcision for any man, Jew or Gentile. Paul said in 1 Corinthians seven nineteen, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. From the time of Jesus' death, circumcision has enjoyed no place of necessity in matters of religion or salvation as revealed by God. But here's what happened. As the religion of Judaism developed, circumcision took on new meaning. Before Christ came, rabbis turned circumcision into something far more than God had ever intended under the Old Covenant. See, men took the old religion of the Jewish nation based on the law of Moses and they modified it, they changed it, they crafted their own religious institution and packaged all of that and imposed it upon the Jews. They were adding to the law of Moses. And we called that Judaism and it was prominent and predominant at the time of Christ's life. Enforced by the scribes and Pharisees and imposed on the people, Judaism bound as necessary the ordinance of circumcision. Even when they found Christians, they insisted the men be circumcised. It was considered absolutely essential to be in any kind of fellowship with God and recognized as a means of purification among some of the Pharisees. And as apparent in the book of Galatians, there were Christian men mixed up about all this who insisted on circumcision after it was abolished. Now, that's all a pathway to get to what Paul is talking about. In this passage, Paul is using the term circumcision accommodatively or spiritually. And that's identified by a phrase that stands out, the circumcision made without hands. 
Now that's essential to navigate the text here. The circumcision made without hands. And here's what Paul says that is for everybody. It is putting off the sins of the flesh based on the death of Christ by being buried with Him in baptism. When one does this, there must be faith in the working of God. God is at work in this. The God who raised Christ from the dead, based on the death of Christ, offers to raise sinners from spiritual death as they put off the sins of the flesh. Circumcision made without hands, and they are buried with Christ in baptism. Paul says the only kind of circumcision that is essential today is that which can be called the circumcision of Christ. He died to save us from sin. When we respond, being buried with Christ in baptism, there is a putting off of the sins of the flesh. Repentance, the remission of sins. In this baptism, if one is engaged through faith in the working of God, there is the completeness or the wholeness that Paul has argued can only be found in Christ. He's argued that in chapter 1 and even in the first 10 verses of chapter 2. So, I pause there. Do you see what this is about? Listen again. In Him, you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. Every time you witness a baptism and somebody is responding to the gospel of Christ sincerely, God is at work in that process, taking the sinner out of the death of sin and raising them to a new life, the same God who raised Jesus from the dead. And Paul portrays all of that under this prominent, well-known Jewish figure, circumcision. But circumcision made without hands, the circumcision of Christ. Questions or comments so far? Colossians 2, 11. If I limited myself to one word to capture the very next point that's made after being buried with Christ in baptism, if somebody said, all right, take 12 and 13 and fold those two verses together following the burial, what one word would you use? And it would be resurrection. Resurrection. Made alive together with Christ. The subject of what follows after the burial with Christ in baptism is resurrection. Being raised from, in this particular reference, the death of sin. Paul says here, and he says exactly the same thing in Ephesians 2, that when you were living in sin, you were dead so far as God was concerned. In your relationship with God, there was death, not life. 
And so in Romans 6, in Ephesians 2, in Colossians 2, conversion is portrayed as coming out of the death of sin, buried with Christ in baptism, raised with Christ. That's the idea. So take now 11 through 13, and you'll see it. In Him also... You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So you're raised from the death of sin, having the forgiveness of your sin based on the cross of Christ, and God is at work in that whole process of conversion. Now let's get all that connected. Pick up the thought out of verse 10. <clears throat> Paul uses this terminology in Colossians 1 and 2. Fullness and filled. And in some translations it will say you are complete <clears throat> in Him. So once I'm engaged as an individual with the circumcision made without hands, being buried with Christ in baptism and I'm raised out of sin into this new life, there as I walk in Him, the last phrase in verse 6, I'm complete. Nobody can come along and say, well, there's, there's some other things I've got for you to do that God didn't tell you about. And it's a secret. That's sort of the Gnostic influence that prevailed in Colossae and Laodicea. We say no to that. Very simple truth. Paul wrote to the Colossians, easy for us to read and understand. Sin is our problem, and so the body of the sin of the flesh should be cut off. Christ died on the cross so that this could happen. We personally embrace that forgiveness when we are buried with Christ in baptism, and we are made alive together with Him, having our transgressions forgiven. And where did the Colossians hear about all this? Well, it says back in chapter 1, they heard this through the preaching and teaching of the gospel. You need to be certain you have obeyed the gospel. Once you've obeyed the gospel according to what the New Testament says, you need to be certain, secondly, that you walk in Him. Remember verse 6, As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. And then you need to enjoy the completeness that God has assigned to that relationship. And then as you walk in Him, you need to share that message with others. It's all here. The problem is sin. The solution is Jesus Christ. The solution is applied when we are buried with Him in baptism. And then we walk in Him. We are at verse 14, but I'll pause. Questions or comments? 14, having wiped out, that's the New King James I think I'm reading now. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, 
which was contrary to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. ESV, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. When the New Testament describes the death of Christ, the benefits are wide-ranging. The benefits are wide-ranging, chiefly as described in the previous text we were looking at, being forgiven of all of our trespasses, raised to a new life. Their other benefits are results of the death of Christ on the cross. And one is, those who were living under the law of Moses were released from that obligation. They were released from that obligation. This is taught in some detail in Galatians, in Romans, in Hebrews, and to some extent in Ephesians. Here is the language Paul uses here in chapter 2, verse 14. Wiped out the handwriting of requirements, canceled the record of debt. Those who were living under the law of Moses were released from that obligation, that debt, that, by the way, was not paid until the cross. It was like having a debt you cannot pay and when Jesus died, the debt is dismissed. It is marked, paid. It was against us, those who were under it, because nobody could be saved by keeping it. It was a law or document that was temporary. It was a provisional function of God's plan for the Jews before Christ. Because of the sin of those who lived under that old covenant, it was ineffective. It was not ineffective as God gave it. It was ineffective because of those who did not keep it. So the debt piled up. And it was always the plan that Jesus' death would pay that debt in full and take that first testament out of existence. Those who were living under the law of Moses were released from that obligation. Now, should you be talking to someone, perhaps this might not be the first passage you would make reference to about the status of the Old Covenant. There might be other passages you would want to go to. For example, I think one of the clearest statements of this is in Acts 13, 38 and 39. Acts 13, 38 and 39, Paul is in Antioch, the Pisidian Antioch. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So I would bring that up. Hebrews chapter 8 is an excellent chapter. To go through. I don't have time to read a lot of that, but let me give you an idea. In Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 and 7, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the co uh, I'm sorry, 
I, I know I missed a word. don't know which one it was, but I need to read that better. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Also jot down Ephesians 2, 14 to 18, Romans chapter 7, the first part of that chapter. Many passages teach exactly what we're reading here. That those who were living under the law of Moses were released from that obligation. So, let's put all this together again and then I'll pause and we'll move to the victory part of this. Colossians 2.11 In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with Him in baptism in which you also were raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. Before I take us to the victory part of this in verse 15, questions or comments? Colossians 2, 11 through 14. I made a promise to you when we started that the theme of this is victory, that that's the destination of the text when you look at this paragraph from 11 to 15. Here's what I mean. Verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Now you see the powerful working of God that brought victory. To whatever extent we are able, we need to try to understand the expression, principalities and powers are in the ESV, rulers and authorities. The phrase always identifies something known for its power. The specific use of the phrase depends always upon context. And the context here is something powerful that found defeat when Christ died. In fact, one translation says, He made an open public spectacle of them, and He triumphed over them. I believe this is a reference to all the accumulated forces arrayed against Christ before His death. All considered, comprehensive. So, if you were to make a list of all those forces that were arrayed against Christ, intending to take Him to His death, you made a list of those, you'd have religious leaders, soldiers and governors and the devil himself and his demons, every last one, every form of opposition that intended to defeat Christ was defeated 
by the very instrument they intended would defeat him. Jesus made statements before his death that the ruler of this world and his legions and operatives would fall in defeat. One notable example of that is demonic activity before the cross suffered a blow. Disarmed. Defeated. When I read everything the Bible says about demonic activity, my personal conclusion is that the demonic activity you read about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is not happening today because of the cross. Victory. They were defeated. All of those who arrayed themselves against God's plan and against Jesus Christ, the very instrument they thought would defeat Him, defeated them. And that's the victory that I believe is referred to in verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. That certainly takes in the resurrection. It certainly takes in the resurrection. Any belief that those forces, demonic in person, are able to do today what they did before the cross, I would affirm diminishes the power of the cross. Let me say that again. Any belief to the contrary, any belief that demonic forces today have exactly the same power they had before the cross diminishes the power of the cross itself. Christ is a victor over that realm. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. This teaches victory. Victory as a result of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Victory we can claim when we are buried with Christ in baptism. And then according to verse 6, the last phrase, as we walk in Him. Questions or comments? Anything you've thought about? I have left out 11 through 15. Takeaway time. Mark this passage, buried with Christ in baptism. I have a good idea that everybody in this class just, you see it right there on the page. You see that as teaching baptism as essential. Well, when you're in discussions with friends or family and you hear the command to be baptized diminished and some assertion to the contrary made, this is one of the passages you need to remember. And here's how I've done this before to some good effect. Show your friend or relative Colossians 2.6. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him and ask the person, do you believe it's necessary to receive Jesus Christ as the Lord? And everybody's going to say yes. Everybody's going to say yes if they are religious in nature. Maybe a Protestant denominational background, but they're going to say yes. Well, then ask them, what does that mean? What does that entail? And they say, well, it's believing, receiving Jesus Christ as Lord. And that's where you say to them, well, let's, let's just keep reading. 
and see what we discover is involved in that. And then you start reading at verse 6 and just take them right over through verse 11 and stop there and say, do you think being buried with Christ in baptism is a part of receiving Christ Jesus the Lord? Maybe some silence then. But what we want to do is help people see what the Lord said about how to respond to Him, being buried with Christ in baptism. Now you can go into the Greek if you need to, and a dictionary, and maybe pull up some huge body of theological history and work, but it's not necessary. Read the text. Not only this one, but all the others that pertain to the same matter, our response to the death of Christ. And be certain that you emphasize that in that response, it is not that you are earning something, you're receiving something. And then you go to that phrase we were emphasizing in verse 12, the powerful working of God, but it's through faith. It's through faith, and the faith is to be active, being buried with Christ in baptism. I want to talk to you about something else. This concept of being made alive, being raised out of the death of sin, is more fully developed in Ephesians 2. Let's go there. We have time. Let's go to Ephesians 2 and listen to this concept developed. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God. That may be two of the most important words in the Bible. Certainly in this text, it's the turning point. You were dead, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus." so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in Him. I remember when I first learned this text, I don't remember if it was the King James um, or maybe the Revised Standard Version, American Standard Version, I don't remember which one. It said quickened. Instead of raised, some of the older translations will have that word quickened. So it's like you're stuck in a place, and when you obey the gospel, you're quickened. You're made alive. It's a resurrection. It's very important to understand that the same God who raised Christ from the dead and demonstrated His power in that historical act 
certainly has the power to raise sinners from the death of sin. So it may already be the case, but if your Bible has references, sometimes they'll be along the center column or there'll be a footnote. Uh, you may find a reference to Ephesians 2, 1 through 7, or you can mark that in your Bible if you are accustomed to doing so. I'm going to pause again because I've got three other takeaways before I get to those questions or comments. The question may come up, what was nailed to the cross? Now, there's no doubt something was nailed to the cross. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us or in the ESV, the language is canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands that he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I don't know how this could be anything other than the law of Moses. The Old Testament, the previous covenant. I understand that Gentiles incur a debt by their sin. But Gentiles were not under the legal demands of a written covenant. They were under God's moral law, and they had a debt to be paid. But this in particular, in verse 14, I don't know how this could be anything else. Now, let's make this qualification to it. The Old Testament has great value for us today, and we don't discount that. When we affirm what Paul affirmed in verse 14, the Old Testament provides background information about God's plan from eternity. The Old Testament provides rich illustrative material about righteousness and unrighteousness. The Old Testament is clear about eternal principles that transcend dispensational boundaries. The Old Testament provides necessary history and prophecy, but we're not living under that code that covenant. We are not subject to the laws of the altar, animal sacrifices, and all that goes with that. It was set aside, nailed to the cross. Number four, there is victory over sin and death. Not only do I need to go through Colossians 2, 11 through 15 and look at the details and see how the main point of victory emerges not just an academic exercise, then I need to rejoice in the victory that I have as one walking in Him. So passages like this are not just an academic exercise where, well, now I understand what this phrase is, how it fits in and connects to the paragraph. It all should lead us to an immense level of gratitude and joy that God has made such good provision for us in Christ and Remember the theme of Colossians that we are complete in Him. Christ's death was against those who put Him to death. He disarmed them, but He gave victory to those who respond to Him, who are buried with Him in baptism. Nobody has anything better, nor does anybody have anything that supplements what God provides in Christ. In fact, a supplement we need to regard as an intrusion. And I'll have more to say about that uh, when we come to the next paragraph Sunday. Nobody has anything better than what we have in Christ. There is no point in 
in wasting energy and disrespect for God by entertaining something that men claim is better than what we have in Christ. And I think that's exactly what was happening in Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis and that area. There were Gnostic philosophers who sort of came up with an eclectic religion, a mix of many different things. And because of that, they felt like they were elevated and they would say to Christians in Colossae, well, Christ is okay and the new covenant is fine, but we've got something that'll take you even to a higher level. No, no, we just need to stop that. Uh, when it is argued in that fashion. We were buried with Christ in baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and as we walk in Him and continue in the faith, God provides for us perfectly. Anything else? There are some don'ts in the process of going through Colossians chapter 2. And you might make a note of these, and it will all come together, I think, perhaps in a better way when we get to 16 and 18 down in that next section. Don't let anyone kidnap you. Do you remember that from verse 8? See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. And then we're going to see in what we're going to look at Sunday, don't let anyone condemn you or judge you by the rules and religion they have come up with that they claim is a supplement to what you have in Christ. And don't let anyone disqualify you from your reward, it's going to say down in verse 18. So I think it's clear someone was out to try to capture the Colossians. And Paul is writing to give them a defense and a resistance to that false religion that was operating in that area. Thank you very much for your good attention. We'll continue with verse 16 Sunday.